Michael Schumacher's finest hour in a Benetton came just four races before he would never race for the team again, in a Grand Prix where he only led three laps. But this was a memorable win made all the more special at the Nürburgring, given the manner in which he grabbed it after a flat-out chase to close down a gap of more than 40 seconds to break the hearts of Jean Alesi and the Ferrari team Schumacher would be joining for the following season. Welcome to episode two of the third series of Bring Back V10s, where we are looking back at the 1995 European Grand Prix and all the stories that were going on in F1 at the time. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me today are two guests making their first appearances of the series, Ed Straw and Matt Beer. And Matt, we'll come to you first so you can have the first go at the traditional opening question. So when you think back to Nürburgring 1995, what's the first thing that comes to mind? A uh, physically and mentally broken Damon Hill limping away from a, an equally broken Williams, but applauding as he did so. Yeah, I think there's a lot about this race that summed up Damon Hill's 1995. So we'll come back to that in quite a lot of depth at multiple points during this episode. Now, Ed, I'm absolutely certain I know what you're going to pick about this race. So don't let me down. Well, I'm going to be as predictable as ever on this one and point to the F1 swan song for one of my favourites of the year, Gabriele Tarquini. Yes. Standing in at Tyrrell, finished 14th, six laps down, but it was great to see him getting one last outing in appropriately unpromising circumstances because you just can't beat one-off random appearances. The only disappointment was it wasn't in a 40 Corsa. Obviously, but it did get him into the first F1 PlayStation game, which was the important thing. Now the series is up and running, remember that for our final episode or two, we'll be taking your questions on anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. All you have to do to submit a question is use the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, and that list is already building up, as some of you have got in nice and early before this series even started. But you can also submit a question by leaving us a five-star podcast review, and as always, thank you so much to those of you who have already done that. We do really appreciate it. But let's crack on with why we're here, and that's F1's return to the Nürburgring after a decade away. There was a lot going on in the driver market around this time, and we'll come to some of those stories shortly. But to set the scene for the weekend, we'll take a look at Williams, where team orders were the big topic of discussion following David Coulthard's maiden F1 win a week earlier in Portugal. Michael Schumacher finished second at Estoril with Damon Hill third, and after that result, and with four races still to go, Schumacher led Hill in the championship by 17 points with 40 remaining, and Coulthard was another 16 behind Hill. But Williams said its drivers were free to race, which Hill called a problem. And Hill added at the time, Williams stands a good chance of winning both world championships, and it would seem a bit of a waste if we finished up fighting each other and I lose the driver's crown, but obviously I'm biased. Coulthard said he was tired of being asked about it and he was told that he was free to race as long as he wasn't holding Hill up. Now, Matt, Williams was a team famously never keen on team orders, but at the end of this season where Schumacher clearly seemed to have an edge, should it have been more willing to do a bit more to keep Hill in the championship hunt? The, the thing with this debate at the time was that it never really actually hit a real flashpoint it was always kind of all about semantics of whether it would in theory because there was never an occasion in the second half of that season when Hill was up behind Coulthard and Coulthard was slower than Hill and he could have let him pass for for any kind of decent game the closest it came I think was at Spa when um, Coulthard broke down from the lead not long, not long after Hill got up to second so it was kind of a moot point 
Um, so it just seemed like, a, even at the time, even long before kind of social media blowing it up, it just seemed like a row about nothing and just kind of indicative of how Hill was feeling in himself at the time. It's also worth adding that even if you put together Hill and Coulthard's best results in 95 to come up with a hypothetical ideal season, they still come up short of Schumacher's tally. Of course, that doesn't reflect the impact it might have had on Hill psychologically had he had the team's full support, which is obviously significant. But it's not a kind of Williams 86 situation with Mansell and PK where you can say, oh, actually, there's occasions. Matt's quite right when he points that out. Hill wrote in his book that Frank Williams's reluctance to give him total support while Schumacher had Benetton built entirely around him, was starting to irritate Damon, and he said it all boiled over at the Nürburgring. Hill wrote in his book, I had to argue my case with Frank by asking why I had to fight David as well as Schumacher. There was no question that David was getting quicker, and I felt a little threatened by him. I was aware that David had, a, had to make a career for himself, but he wasn't yet fighting to win the, the World Championship. Williams, it now appeared, was less interested in the Drivers' Championship and it looked as if all that mattered was the Constructors' Championship. Teams get paid according to where they finish in the Constructors, but in my view, Frank and Patrick Head were stubbornly refusing to recognise the real value to them of the Drivers' Championship, where all the real kudos resides. At the time, Coulthard also thanked Williams for playing fair, considering he was leaving the team at the end of the year to go to McLaren. And on that subject, Matt, does Williams deserve a bit of credit for playing fair with Coulthard, given that he was leaving? Or, if anything, because he was leaving, were they being too fair? It, it does play into this um, Williams habit of going for the pure racing option, whether that's uh, the Mansell PK situation, 86, or even more recently, not being a B team. And in this case, it was going, we're not about team orders, we're not going to slow David down. Um, but also... For a lot of that second half of the season, Coulthard was Williams' best shot at winning races. He he went on a, a run of four straight poles. He was often the quicker Williams driver in the race. Him and Hill, as we'll talk about later, found lots of ways to lose races. But, you know, if Williams had said to Coulthard, you're now our firm number two, it would have been throwing away some of his best chances of victories from basically August onwards that year. I think that's an important point. If you're going to be really serious about winning the championship, after Monza, you could say go for it because Coulthard was 22 points behind Hill and 37 off Schumacher with 50 to play for so had little chance there's no way back for him but as Matt points out what were the realistic chances of them of either of them winning it ultimately and Coulthard's McLaren deal was quite a messy saga actually that went all the way back to the end of 1994 when he actually ended up signing a one-year deal with Williams for 95 and then on the same day drove to Woking and signed for McLaren for 96 and 97 we won't go into that contract row here but it was around the time of the Nürburgring race that Coulthard's McLaren move became official in public. But this came against a confusing backdrop, as despite the contract being signed way in advance, Coulthard was only named officially once Alain Prost declared he would not be making a racing return with McLaren in 1996. Prost tested with the team a few times in the weeks prior to this, and Ron Dennis subsequently said that the tests were with a view to Prost racing. But Prost initially played the test down, saying he was only trying to help the team and if he wanted to evaluate a proper return, he would be testing over longer distances. But then at his final test, he left the door open, saying, in order to race next year, I will have to be in a 100% situation. I need a good car, a good engine, lots of motivation and support from the team and sponsors. If there are any of these things missing, you cannot do it. Prost then went on to reveal on French TV that he wasn't coming back and that's when everything slotted into place with Coulthard coming in alongside Mika Hakkinen. But Ed, based on that quote 
from, I think, Prost's final test with McLaren, can we assume that when he drove the 95 McLaren, he realised he probably didn't want to come back to drive what at that time seemed like a bit of a pig? Yeah, you do get the impression that Prost might have been willing to have a last hurrah if he could have jumped into a Williams 93-type scenario. So get out there, win a title, or at the very least, fight for one and win races in a a decent car. But I don't really get the impression he massively had that ultimate desire anymore, which perhaps isn't a surprise given he was, what, 40 years old. He'd already achieved everything in F1, and incidentally, on the day of the race we're talking about, he was commentating for, for French TV. So why would he want to jump in and race again for a recovering McLaren? that he would have realised was still some way off fighting for wins again and, and going for championships. So, yeah, there, there's nothing in it for Prost. It was certainly nowhere near a 100% situation. Probably wasn't even a 50% situation, frankly. It's very similar to when we talked about him considering the comeback for 1994. And that was another one that fell over once he tested the car. But Ron Dennis did acknowledge around the 95 tests that there was some confusion. But I would say that his attempts to clear it up didn't really achieve that. Ron said... There was an understandable confusion concerning our discussions with Alan. I did always stress that the object was not necessarily to see him as a racing driver. There was a strong possibility that he will be contributing to the performance of the team. What we're trying to do is supplement our team with experience. That sounds like Ron, doesn't it? Like all teams, we had a dialogue with Michael Schumacher. And at the point, Michael was not an option for the team. David essentially became an integral part of McLaren. Putting Michael aside, we were controlling, more than any other team, what was happening with the drivers. All the driver changes, other than Schumacher's, have been the result of our decisions. I don't want to sound arrogant, you sure, Ron, but I believe this to be accurate. Uh, Matt, do you think that is accurate or is it just arrogant? Well, obviously, Arrows replacing um, Taki Inui with Ricardo Rosset was a direct uh, result of a, of a McLaren decision. Knew it. Um, no, it, it was it's it's classic Ron Dennis, isn't it? Every driver market move that that winter was all kind of connected in some way to Schumacher and what Benetton did with him going and what Ferrari did to plug that hole. So at that point, McLe- McLaren could have been relieved that Coulthard wanted to go and drive their car because after the terrible season they'd had, um, there, there wasn't going to be a queue of people for that for that seat. Perhaps McLaren was controlling the driver market because it had deep tobacco funded pockets. In Coulthard's first book, he wrote that he thinks the offer from McLaren was four times what he could get from Williams. And he had said in that book as well that his Williams deal for 95 was for half a million pounds. So a bit of quick maths would tell us that a two million pound switch to McLaren wasn't a bad bit of business. But in Coulthard's interview for the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, DC said he learned a big lesson from this move when he went from leading the final race of 1995 for Williams to qualifying 13th for the first race of 96 with McLaren. And speaking to Tom, uh, Coulthard said, the penny dropped, never move for financial gain, always try to be in the most competitive car possible. That move to McLaren was a financial driver for IMG, that's his management company, who took a percentage of my contract. So for them, going to a much bigger contract was the business they were in. But had I stayed at Williams for 96 and 97, I'd have had two more opportunities to win the world championship. And in his book about this, uh, DC said, among the many things Ron Dennis said to me over the years, one that stood out was money is only important if you don't have any. So Ed, Coulthard accepts that he ended up driving some pretty good McLarens once Adrian Newey switched over from Williams. But was he wrong to be motivated by money when he made this switch for 96? Yeah, it's a difficult one really because... 
on the one hand, you can't really argue with him because it's his life. He understands it far better than I do, and he knows the impact it had on his career and his existence. But he's right that he effectively traded a couple of years in a great Williams in 96 and 7 for a what turned out to be a nine-year stint at McLaren, during which he usually had a winning car and several times had a title-winning car. So there was a long-term performance benefit as well as the financial side. And we have to remember as well that he went from having relatively little cash, I think he said he had £300,000 worth of racing debt still outstanding that were cleared as a result of this, and he went from relatively normal pay to being a millionaire almost overnight through uh, through this deal, and it went very well for him. We can't really imagine what would have happened had he stayed at Williams. He wasn't going to be staying there for another nine seasons, I wouldn't have thought, with how that team went uh, up and down. But you never know. He might have had a a few championships, at least one championship, and he could have made a big move to McLaren down the line. Or it could have all gone a little bit Jacques Villeneuve, couldn't it? And then by the time he gets to 2000, he's driving around in an Arrows or something. So maybe that was a fair trade. But I think what he really gets to the point of is that the primary motivator should never be the financial side because as he says a management company it's in their interest to drive moves you see this in a lot of sports as well and there's a fine balance to be to be drawn between should we say short-term gain and long-term gain but actually in retrospect while it was a short-term negative for him it wasn't necessarily a bad thing long-term even if it perhaps did cost him the 96 or 7 or even both world championships. Also, like like you said, Ed, this was like an overnight change of situation for Coulthard, and it's it's easy to forget he wasn't the kind of savvy businessman operator he is now. Back then, he'd been plucked straight out of Formula Three thousand into Ayrton Senna's car after Senna's death. He then had um, Bernie Eccleston trying to make sure Mansell was in that car instead, and then the management company kind of getting involved and uh, trying to accelerate things for him. That was a as a real whirlwind um, in the first eighteen months of his F one career. The, the main, you know, he ended up in a much better career situation on paper by going to McLaren, given what happened to Williams after '97. But it was uh, the factory should have probably looked at was who his teammate was going to be more than um, what car he was moving into or what what his wage was going to be. Okay, well, just a quick note to let you know that Ed has been booted off the rest of the podcast for that Jacques Villeneuve comment. But let's move on to some other driver market topics. And if you thought that Prost, Coulthard, McLaren nonsense was good, you're going to love this one because now it's time to tell the story of how Eddie Irvine ended up signing for Ferrari a week after he'd been announced as a Jordan driver for 1996. The first part of this story was that Eddie Jordan could tell Irvine wanted to move on and wanted bigger money, which Jordan was unlikely to be able to provide. Irvine told Jordan over the summer of 95 that he was close to doing a deal with Ligier, and although he was contracted for 96 with Jordan, he thought there was a buyout clause in his contract that would allow him to make the move. However, Eddie Jordan says Irvine failed to read the fine print, which said even the buyout still required Jordan's agreement. And besides, Jordan didn't expect Ligier boss Tom Walkinshaw to be that interested in buying Irvine out of a contract. So Matt, let's play hypothetical for a moment. Irvine to Ligier for 1996. Would that have been much of a step up from Jordan? I'm really intrigued by this one for a kind of bland midfield move. Jordan actually had a had a very decent 96 car at times, but I think Ligier, in that era when it was full of Benetton DNA and had effectively TWR management running it as well, is a bit of an unknown quantity. It was swapping between Martin Brundle and the Guri Suzuki in one car. You never really quite knew where you stood with Olivier Panis and, and what you were going to get. 
a kind of um, a confident, cocky Eddie Irvine walking into that situation might have been quite interesting, but I, I suspect he wouldn't have won the 1996 Monaco Grand Prix. It's kind of the definition of a sideways move, isn't it? You're trading the team that finished fifth in the championship the previous year and is going to finish sixth that year for the one that did the reverse. So very similar. But I think it's not really much to do with the competitiveness with the team and opportunities for Irvin. It was everything to do with earning potential and, and, and negotiations. The very fact Irvin told Jordan about it, this opportunity, rather than just unilaterally moving, if, of course, he could have done, had he not misunderstood the nature of the lease course, shows that this was about finances pure and simple rather than a team move really but jordan said the ligier discussion at least confirmed his suspicions that irvine wanted a way out uh, eddie jordan said he knew there'd been some small talk between irvine and nicky lauder at ferrari but lauder backed away from that once he knew there was a buyout clause involved so jordan tried to reignite those discussions via michael schumacher in his book uh, jordan said i called michael and said something along the lines of look you need a teammate who is going to help you. Yes, Irvine's cheeky, but he's quick. And when he gets down to it, he's obedient. Winning races will not be his out-and-out priority. I think he'd be very happy to drive for Ferrari, and I think he'd do a lot of the testing and the hard slog that you'd want someone to do. I genuinely believe he'll be a good teammate. Schumacher took that pitch to Ferrari boss John Tott, who then pulled Eddie Jordan aside at the Portuguese Grand Prix to ask what Irvine would want to be paid, and Jordan caught him by surprise when he said, I can negotiate that, which is classic Eddie. Uh, Eddie put forward figures between four and six million dollars. And he says, Todd politely said I was quite mad. However, Todd did ask for a meeting with Irvine, which happened at his hotel that weekend. And from there, he instructed Marlborough to go ahead and get the deal done as the sponsor paid the driver's salaries at Ferrari. Once Jordan worked out it was a negotiation with Marlborough, who'd backed Irvine in the past and liked him, he reckoned he could get it up to $6 million after all. So Ed, I even said it there, I think, while I was reading that out. This is classic Eddie Jordan looking to sell on a driver he's got under contract. Yeah, it's an object lesson in wheeling and dealing. I hope someone's using this as a, as a teaching tool in a business school somewhere because he's basically turning water into wine. As he admitted, he's got a driver who knows wants to move on or at the very least wants to be paid a lot more he's good but not a superstar and he's somehow convinced Ferrari not just to sign him but to pay through the nose for doing it if it weren't for the fact this sort of thing happened to Eddie Jordan regularly you'd say it was just some outrageous fluke and he was making up the whole mythology behind it but if you remember we talked in season two when Schumacher moved to Benetton from Jordan, how that was a learning experience for Eddie Jordan in terms of the contracts and how you do things well this deal and many others prove he was a very very quick study yeah, and in fact, next week, we're going to talk about another one of these tricks that he pulled, but I'll reveal uh, the race that that circles around later, and you can probably guess which driver it involves then. But the two Eddies flew to Switzerland to meet with Ferrari's lawyer to get this deal done, and Irvine slept on the floor of that private jet they were flying on because he was hungover. So when they got there, Jordan left him to sit by a lake to clear his head while he did the negotiating for him. At this point, Ferrari president Luca di Montezemolo phoned in to the talks, and Jordan says in his book that uh, Montezemolo gave me one of his impassioned speeches saying I was looking for far too much money and claiming I had no understanding of the true value of the driver market. When Luca finished this monologue, I said that Ferrari and Marlborough ought to be careful that Irvine did not go to Ligier because they were desperate to have him. Then I waited for that to hit home. I knew that Marlborough would not be keen to see Irvine associating with another tobacco brand 
that could easily increase its penetration in Britain as a result, referring, of course, to Ligier's title sponsor. That got the discussion back on track, though, so Eddie Jordan managed to get a figure of $5 million agreed. And on that, he said, I could hardly believe this was happening. It was daylight robbery and I was the one wearing the mask. Jordan then left the talks to go and find Irvine, who was still by the lake feeding some ducks. And he told him the deal was done and all he needed to do was sign. And then, in Jordan's words, Irvine played his ace card. Irvine said he'd decided he wanted to honour his Jordan contract for 1996 because they had lots more to achieve together. Jordan, who said, I'd already spent this money in my mind, said it was a cunning move from Irvine, aimed at getting Jordan to reduce his cut. They came to an agreement, which Jordan says cost him a million dollars. Matt, I have to ask, was Irvine worth this amount of trouble, particularly to Ferrari, or is this just, as Ed said, incredible deal-making from Jordan? It's almost like Jean Todd predicted how rubbish the 96 Ferrari was going to be and that he wasn't looking for a number two for an instant title shot, but a really pragmatic, sensible, savvy, like Eddie Jordan said, cheeky number two who would slot in, do the donkey work, not complain you know, too vociferously about the situation Ferrari was in and just get on with earning his money and doing his job. Um, I don't think any of the other kind of ambitious young chargers on the market or grumpy veterans who thought they might be better than Schumacher really who were kicking around for that drive would have done would have handled that situation that Ferrari then found itself in as uh, as sensibly as Irvine did so yeah at the time absolute bolt from the blue that seemed like lunacy but in in hindsight just the exact person you wanted in that car for, for 96 at least and probably 97 too interesting question is what the alternatives were it's very much a second driver role and there were lots of good, easy, cheap options. People like Nicola Larini, Johnny Morbidelli were being linked to it. Obviously, they had Ferrari links in a race for Ferrari. I think even Luca Badoa was was mentioned as a as a possibility. He would obviously be a Ferrari test driver for a very, very long time. So they could have got a cheaper and easier option who would have done maybe a similar job to Irvin, but perhaps not within the right mindset. And probably it was felt also having an Italian driver might not be such a great idea, given they wanted this very much to be Team Schumacher. One of the big parts of Jordan's pitch to get a good fee for Irvine was that it would cost him money to find a replacement. And no sooner was the Irvine deal done than Jordan called Martin Brundle to offer him a seat for 1996. Brundle found it hard to leave Ligier, where he was driving for Tom Walkinshaw, who'd always looked after him going back to the 1980s. At the time, Brundle said leaving Walkinshaw was like cutting off one of my own legs. But he said when he told Walkinshaw about the Jordan offer... Tom wasn't in a position to respond for various reasons, so Brundle felt the time was right to make the move. A deal was done in 15 minutes, and Jordan instantly started including Brundle in his pitches to Benson and Hedges for a sponsorship deal for 1996, which was very well received. Brundle had, of course, raced for Jordan in that famous British F3 season in 1983 against Ayrton Senna, and Jordan had tried to sign him in 1994 as well, but Brundle decided that time to gamble on Alain Prost rejecting that offer from McLaren that we briefly mentioned, which paid off a week before the 1994 season started. And that's how Brundle got his year at McLaren. But Matt, given Brundle's history with Jordan, which, as we say, went back over a decade by this point, was it inevitable that at some point they would come together in F1? Yeah, I think so. And yeah, I'm still sad at how badly 96 worked out for them together, which I'm not going to talk about now because I'm sure that's in season seven at some point. But no, it this seemed like a, a dream deal because 
it was they had a long relationship and even though he was quite old by this point Brundle was still massively hungry he'd still not got an F1 win um, Jordan hadn't had experienced drivers of, of with that level of motivation since the Cheseries. Any other kind of veterans from elsewhere had, got, had lost all motivation and interest by the time they got to Jordan, whereas uh, Brundle was confident. Driving well for Ligier, I thought, that season as well. Not consistently, quite a lot of mistakes, but his best drives, like Manu Korn nearly getting a podium, Spa actually getting a podium, were, were excellent. So this did seem like a, a perfect match. Brundle coming in, the guy who's been at Benetton, been at McLaren, a decade of F1 experience, exactly what Jordan needs, and he knows and loves the boss already. Should have worked out really well. Seemed like a really smart move. Spoilers, it, it was rubbish. Yeah, we'll get Gary Anderson to explain that to us one day in the future. It's good that Matt's already got eyes on the Series 7 uh, schedule. I wish I was planning that far ahead. But Ed, let's get on to the main reason you wanted to be on this episode, and that is the driver change at Tyrrell. Uko Katayama was hoping to be fit to race at the Nürburgring after his massive crash at the start in Portugal, which if you've never seen it, Google it. Tyrrell designer Harvey Postlethwaite said Katayama was travelling at 138 miles an hour when he got flipped over in that accident, and Postlethwaite praised the safety of modern F1 uh, in that Katayama only had a stiff neck afterwards, as well as pointing out that the increased head protection coming in for 1996 would have helped him even more. But Katayama was ruled out for the Nürburgring, and Gabriele Tarquini was called up to stand in for him. By this time, Tarquini was an absolute superstar in touring car racing. But Ed, I'm going to put you on the spot. Firstly, can you tell us off the top of your head when his last F1 start was before this one? Sadly, I can. Because his last full F1 season was in 92 with Fon Metal and they ran out of steam with three races remaining. So it should have been Monza in, in 92 would have been his last Formula 1 start. I did have faith in you to get that one right. Now, Tarquini predicted it would be difficult to switch back from touring cars to F1. He said the reactions and the speed needed in fast corners are totally different. Now, if you can, Ed, putting aside how much you love this decision, looking at it almost coming to it cold, was it the right choice for Tyrrell to get Tarquini in or should they have looked for someone with more recent F1 experience? Yeah, it's not necessarily ideal to bring in a stand in who hasn't raced in F1 for three years and his main programmes in two-litre front-wheel drive super tours, although he did do a little bit of Class 1 stuff in DTM and ITC that season as well. But he was the team's test driver. Von Mattal, you can see on the rear wing there, they did the wind tunnel work and they were a big supporter of Tarquini. They tried to push him into the, the race drive and although he didn't get that, he was their test driver. And I did do a little bit of digging to try and work out exactly how much running Tarquini had done that year. And actually, he did do a certain amount not masses but he he did get out and about in that car he'd done a couple of tests at Silverstone he did three days of running at Pembray he did the Silverstone test before the Hungarian Grand Prix so that was just under two months before so he did know the car and he was familiar with the team so it made sense from that perspective always difficult to be chucked in as a stand-in had a few things to learn like the, the fly-by-wire throttle I don't think he'd he'd driven before and the weather conditions were were tricky and the 95 Tyrrell Yamaha package wasn't a great one despite having a few little interesting features about it Tarquini, I think, had to be the logical choice, given that he did know the car and the team. They could have gone for a race-sharp outsider, ones that leap out, maybe Gianni Morbidelli, who was on the sidelines at Arrows at that stage, but had raced that season. Similar situation with Bertrand Gasho at Pacific. But then again, they wouldn't have known the team. I don't think if you'd thrown in a race-sharp, a Formula One race-sharp driver, it would have had a transformative effect. So really, they needed a safe, sensible pair of hands, and, and Tarquini did that. I don't think he was anywhere near his best, but... 
you know, he brought the car home, he did okay, and he didn't get in the way a huge amount, although there was one moment where he was relevant in the race, as we'll talk about later. Yeah, we'll come back to that. So we'll move from the reason Ed is on this episode to the main reason I've bothered turning up. Because if you thought we wouldn't be able to find a way to get a Jacques Villeneuve reference into this episode, you are grossly mistaken. Because Villeneuve was signed up for Williams for 1996 by this point, and he was beginning a test program that Frank Williams said would take in a million miles at circuits he doesn't know. Villeneuve's IndyCar season had finished by this point, so he's fully focused on F1 and had the Indy 500 and the IndyCar title already in his pocket. So as if Damon Hill needed any more on his mind at this time of year, Villeneuve's time in a test at Monza was quicker than Hill managed in qualifying for the Italian Grand Prix. Williams called that test promising, and while Frank played the times down due to track conditions and engine spec, he did say it's not a plonker's time. Thank you, Frank. That's one of the kindest things that's been said about Jacques on the show for a while. However, the main thing Williams wanted to see was how Villeneuve would get on an upcoming Imola test with lots of other teams in attendance. But Ed, looking at how Villeneuve was perceived before he arrived in 1996, do you think he was coming into that Williams drive with, with high stock? Or was there maybe a lot of caution around him, given that he was going to be the first driver to make that move since Michael Andretti's failed attempt with McLaren in 93? Yeah, there was certainly interest and some level of excitement. He'd won a race in his debut IndyCar season. He'd won the Indy 500. He was on his way to the, the IndyCar title in 95. And the in the wider world, IndyCar, Champ Car as it would come more commonly known after the car series, was still on that big upward curve that started with Nigel Mansell heading out there. But Villeneuve didn't have a great European pedigree. He had won a few Italian F3 races, then had some success in Japanese F3. But there was still an asterisk against him. And as you say, that Andretti debacle was still hanging over Formula 1. We talked about that in, I think it was Season 2. We had the 93 Portuguese Grand Prix episode. And there, there was real concerns about bringing in IndyCar drivers. Villeneuve, I think, was a couple of seconds off in his first test at Silverstone. So it wasn't one of those, wow, he's jumped in the car and he's so stunningly fast. So that perhaps tempered the buzz a bit. But he was a driver with a European grounding. Unlike Andretti, he wasn't a decade-long veteran of, of IndyCar racing and a product of that system. He was a much more cosmopolitan, should we say, driver in terms of his origins. So there was genuine interest. His stock was high, but tempered with a level of scepticism. And it wasn't as if Williams had to fight off all the other top teams to, to get his name on a contract. And all credit to them for taking the punt. He did get a massive free pass from quite a lot of the media at that point, from being Gilles Villeneuve's son as well. There was a, a massive fondness for the idea of another Villeneuve in F1 succeeding. So I think that did take that did temper the scepticism. As you say, the, the Andretti being terrible thing, coupled with Mansell going straight over to IndyCar and, and, and winning it, um, had raised a lot of scepticism about, uh, about Indy to F1 transfers. I actually think the whole reason that IndyCar cart to F1 became fashionable was entirely down to what Villeneuve then did in 96. So more Villeneuve posit positivity for Glenn here. But I feel like um, Villeneuve's performance in Melbourne the following, in the following year did make people realise that actually this, this transition from American racing to F1 was doable. But I, I really don't think without that famous, evocative, romantic surname he would have been given quite the welcome he got, or, or maybe even that he would have been looked at as seriously by, by even Williams. We'll just end it there, shall we? We're not going to top that for this episode. I think we've peaked. Um, we've got a few pages left of the script. Let's carry on. Anyone who knows the story of this race 
knows we're going to spend plenty of time talking about Jean Alesi. But before we get to his performance at the Nürburgring, there were reports following the Portuguese Grand Prix that he was fined for being heavily critical of team boss Jean Todt after ignoring team orders to let Gerhard Berger through. This is the quote that got Alesi into trouble, which he gave to Italian TV. He said, the team wanted me to let Gerhard through and radioed me. I'm not going to be a loser. Todd is breaking my balls. He is, a pro- he is the problem at Ferrari. I'm not criticising Ferrari as a whole, but Todd's management of the team. I'm fed up with it and it is high time that Luca di Montezemolo realises what's going on. Todd's response uh, prior to Alacy being fined was quite measured, actually, given that, as far as I can tell there, Alacy was quoting Cartman from South Park before that TV show even existed. Uh, Todd said, It was in the interest of the team that Alacy allowed Berger through because Gerhard's car was performing better. Jean has a generous nature, but a temperament that can be too emotional. For the past five years, we have given him our maximum support and we will continue to do so for the last four races of this season. Berger said he'd been asked to move over in the past and always done it, but when he was asked about Alacy being fined when they got to the Nürburgring, he launched into a massive attack on Ferrari's press man. This seems utterly bizarre. Berger said, Sometimes you have the feeling that we are just looking for big casinos and we have a press man who makes the situation worse. There are some things that should not be discussed outside the team, but at the same time, we should say what we think. He also accused the press man, Giancarlo Baccini, of thinking he's a small Mr. Ferrari. Alessi explained this a little bit regarding the tension with Todd in an interview with Motorsport magazine in 2017. And he said it was the relationship was problematic by then because the team didn't tell him they were signing Schumacher for 96. Alessi's quote in the Motorsport interview was, Flavio Briatore made me aware of the Michael situation. When I asked the team what was going on, they never said it was happening. It was the right choice to have Michael, but they could have told me. So Matt, by this point, Alessi and Berger both know they are out of Ferrari and they're heading to Benetton where Schumacher's leaving. Is this whole saga just a case of two ousted drivers deciding they've had enough of towing the party line? I think it is to an extent. Also, at the time, Ferrari of 95 looked quite sensible compared to the Ferrari of 91, 92. The car was more competitive. It was occasionally inheriting race wins and no one was calling it a truck in disputed interviews and getting sacked. So it seemed quite calm, but it was a long way from the kind of logical Ferrari of the of the full Ross Braun era. And uh, Jean Todd was still a relative beacon of, of sense at the time. John Barnard was still there, but working remotely effectively. It, you can understand tensions uh, spilling over. I think a lot of it came from the fact that a lot of drivers on the grid at that point were still partly unwilling to recognize quite how good Schumacher was until he got to Ferrari and made that car win. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I would love to, in retrospect, know what Schumacher could have done with a '95 Ferrari, which I still believe was quite a decent car. Um, so I think it's a combination of Ferrari was probably still more messy and frustrating to be in than it might have looked from the outside. And let's face it, they're both been dumped for someone that they might not, particularly Lacey, have thought they were they were definitely worse than at that point. Yeah, and I think uh, time proved Ferrari's decision to be the correct one. But looking at the Nürburgring weekend, Williams was going to race its B-Spec car for the first time after using it to good effect in qualifying in Portugal. Adrian Newey explained uh, the B-Spec design in Morris Hamilton's excellent book all about Williams that we quite often quote. Uh, Newey said he'd spotted a loophole in the regulations around the rear of the car that could be worth a second a lap in terms of added downforce but he said it required a narrow gearbox 
and after struggling to get Patrick Head to agree to that, Head created what Newey called a fudge-up by putting a step-up gear in the transverse gearbox. Newey said that resulted in a huge step forward, and he was worried that Williams had shown its hand by revealing this design in late 95, so he expected everyone to copy it for 96, but nobody did, which is one of the reasons the FW18 of the following season was so dominant. But looking at the 95 car, Matt, do you think that car maybe gets underestimated because this was the only time in this run of seasons for Williams in the 90s where they ever lost the Constructors' Championship? I think it's one of the best cars in F1 history that failed to win the championship. You know, The reasons why it didn't win were nothing to do with its outright speed. It had two drivers who kept losing their heads. Its reliability was um, fairly ropey early on. I mean, there was a little bit where it didn't handle a change in Goodyear tyre spec as well as Benetton did, so it lost a bit of relative performance. There were also times where the fact that Benetton was so strategically agile just boxed Williams into a corner where it took the wrong strategy and made itself look a lot slower than it actually was so yeah i think that car's massively underestimated um pat with a a confident hill or a slightly more mature coulthard and a few relatively cheap unreliable parts sorted it would have been it would have beaten even schumacher even benetton to that title yeah and we'll talk about that car a bit more later on the revised williams was working well when it hit the track with coulthard and hill locking out the front row and hill noted in his book that after all the team orders fuss that he'd made for him to then be out qualified by Coulthard meant his complaints would fall on deaf ears. But qualifying on Saturday wasn't particularly dramatic due to the Nürburgring's October weather, with Schumacher managing a late improvement that couldn't get the Williamses off the front row, and Hill potentially being on course to beat Coulthard's time before his engine cut out, which Damon suspected might have been because he ran out of fuel. But this was a newsy time for Saturday qualifying to mostly be a washout, as F1 had just agreed to change qualifying from its two-day affair to just one hour on a Saturday afternoon in 1996. So, Ed, I think we can call this the beginning of the modern era of F1 qualifying, where it's all decided in one hour on a Saturday afternoon. Do you think at this point in the mid-90s, was it a good move to cut us down to just that Saturday session? Yeah, it makes sense. While the lack of a proper competitive element on Friday is a little bit of a frustration, the overall gain of having a single intense one-hour qualifying session as a focal point is is a, is a massive gain, isn't it? Actually, you have to remember that qualifying, even on BBC TV in the UK, the terrestrial coverage, I don't think it was shown for every race until maybe 96. It was on Eurosport at the time, the which you had to have a um, satellite TV for. So, this whole thing of qualifying is a thing and then the race is the thing. It wasn't really firmly established, but this facilitated it. It really blew up at Silverstone that year where there were loads of complaints because on Saturday the qualifying was wet, it was 20 seconds a lap slower, and the only people who improved their times were Montemini and Salo because they hadn't set a time on, on the Friday. So, yeah, it was a really important move in in solidifying qualifying as a big part of the, of the show for Formula One rather than just sort of the result of a couple of days of, of practice. And that's really important because it effectively doubles your footprint by creating two must-see parts of the weekend. We're into race day now and it rained through the morning but was drying out by the start of the race. Most people went for wets, but the Ferraris of Berger and Alesi starting fourth and sixth and the McLarens of Hakkinen and Blundell starting ninth and tenth went for slicks. Hill was slow away from the wet side of the track at the start, briefly dropping to fourth behind Coulthard, Schumacher and Irvine. But once he got past the Jordan, the top three broke away. But the person to watch early on was Alesi because of the slick runners, he was the only one to hang on in there. 
Berger fell back because his tyre pressures were set wrong and the McLarens plummeted through the field, with Hakkinen being overtaken at one point by the 40 of Pedro Diniz. McLaren put that down to their cars running a full dry setup, while Alacy was running a wet setup with a high downforce rear wing, soft springs and a raised ride height. He ran sixth early on and by lap six he was matching the pace of the wet tyre runners and then picked off Johnny Herbert for fifth place and by lap 10 he was running fourth and it wasn't long before everyone else was heading into the pits, leaving Alacy with a comfortable lead of 20 seconds, which he more than doubled over the next 15 laps with the track proving very slow to dry out. So Ed, just quickly, how impressive was this opening stint from Alacy? Yeah, very good, particularly in those early laps. Often when it's a marginal call to start on slicks, the key in those first few laps is to push hard enough to, to build and keep the tyre temperature without going off or sliding into someone, which is really difficult to do. If you push too hard and you go off, you lose time. If you don't push hard enough, then you don't get the grip, so you, you plummet. And it wasn't until lap 10 that he's the outright fastest man on, on track, but from laps 2 to 9, he's on average about one and a half seconds off the pace but in those tricky conditions he's not losing the ground so it buys him far far more than he he loses uh, in, had he made the pit stop but then of course because he's got the tire temperature he can keep pushing on and keep building up that that lead if you compare it Berger was about an average of half a second slower than him in that stint albeit with a dry setup Hackenden and Blundell were like 6.27 seconds slower than him on average respectively in in that uh, that early part of the race so that period was really the best part of the of Lacey's race and it created the foundations. And so it kind of reset the race when they both stopped. He had a 29-second advantage over Schumacher when they both made that, that stop later on. So that was the gain that overall he made. We'll leave Lacey out front on his own for a little while and focus on what was going on behind Coulthard, Schumacher and Hill were still running close together and Hill briefly got past Schumacher on lap 16 but Hill then went wide at the final corner later that lap and lost the place again which set up the next piece of controversy in the Schumacher-Hill story of 1995 when Schumacher chopped across Hill on the entry to the turn 8 left-hander and Hill gently by 1995 standards I think we can say ran into the back of him. There was no harm done this time, but of course the drivers had differing views on it. Hill said he had no complaints because that's the way it is now in F1, but he did accuse Schumacher of chopping across him and said there was nothing he could do to stop because he'd put a wheel onto the damp uh, just off to the side of the track. Schumacher rather dismissively said, perhaps Damon was a little bit overconfident. That is not a corner for passing. Matt, I think in terms of Schumacher-Hill controversies of 1995, this barely registers on the scale but what did you make of this little incident between them well i've i watched quite a lot of 1995 back over the last year and in most cases i think schumacher tends to be unfairly maligned at spa the weaving wasn't as bad as i remembered in the, in the other collisions it wasn't as 50 50 it was much more hill's fault this one this was a fairly gratuitous chop across the front that was a bit needless schumacher had been fairly wide all over the road for those few laps and also saying it wasn't a corner for passing the previous lap hill basically did pass him there before he ran wide and threw it away again so yeah that uh, schumacher did a lot right in this race but that that was that was too blunt now on lap 34 a lacy and schumacher pit at the same time but so Alacy's lead of 38 seconds became just four seconds over Hill, who stayed out. 
Lacey was fueled up to the end at this point in a stop that lasted nearly 16 seconds. And on a full tank of fuel after this stop, he wasn't very quick. A couple of laps after the stops, he makes a clumsy error through the fast uphill S's. So on lap 38, he was two seconds slower than Hill and three seconds slower than Schumacher, who at this stage is still 25 seconds behind him. Hill caught Alacy quickly, but the Williams was in for some more trouble at turn eight. This time, as Alacy hesitated while lapping Tarquini's Tyrrell, Hill made a lunge for the lead. And then I, I felt he seemed to realise that Alacy was going to turn in, so he took to the grass on the inside and ends up hitting the Ferrari and damaging his front wing, which sent Damon back to the pits for a new nose. Hill's explanation at the time was this. He said, it was touch and go, but I had to try because all the time I was behind Jean, Michael was making up ground on me and I had a pit stop coming up. Jean knew I was there and if he'd given me some room, I'd have made it through with no problem, which I think applies to every overtake ever in the history of F1. Alacy's view was quite bluntly, Damon did it all by himself. Ed, what did you make of this one? Yeah, I'm sure the 15-year-old Damon Hill fan that I was in 95 was furious with Alacy, but I've got a slightly less part of, uh, partisan view today. I understand why Hill felt he needed to go for it, given the time he was losing, but he should have seen that situation coming, given Tarquini was there and Alacy was thinking about going. But Alacy, for his part, should have been more decisive with his intentions and not given Hill a chance to have a look at all. So actually, both had a hand in it. Hill should have anticipated the situation he was going into and not put himself there. Alacy needed to be more decisive and not put his own race at risk with what he did. If you look at the way Hill was trying to pass Alacy through all those laps and compare it to Schumacher's moves during that race, it's like comparing an octopus trying to attack something to a shark trying to attack <laughs> something. You know, Schumacher is so decisive, doesn't waste any jinx where he doesn't has to have to. Hill was look, was trying half moves at Alacy all over the place, even corners. It was never going to work when he could have just sat behind and then just pounced when Alacy lost momentum after these mistakes. Um, that said, once Damon had committed to that move, the worst thing he did was turning across the curbs and trying to get out of it. He'd have been better off just banging wheels, getting Alacy out of the way and getting on with it, much like Schumacher would have done in that circumstance. Yeah, heading for the wet grass was never going to work out, really, was it? And Damon, I think, was cursed at turn eight in this race. It was on, on the exit of that corner that he crashed out on lap 59, which Matt mentioned at the start of the episode, and that was a big impact. Hill explained at the time that he was pushing hard to catch Coulthard, but he reckoned the clash with Alacy had damaged his steering, which had become heavy, and he said he ran off line because the steering became so stiff, which sent him out onto the wet curb, heading for a meeting with the barriers that was so hard it damaged his knees. Hill is incredibly open about this in his book, uh, which I can't recommend enough if you've not read it. It's absolutely brilliant. And he said, after all the fuss about team orders before this race, the crash made the situation worse. But he then went on to explain why he thinks today that he should take a lot of the responsibility for the strained relationship with Frank Williams and Patrick Head in 1995. There's no way for me to do this explanation from Damon Justice without reading it in full. So here we go. This is what Damon wrote. I could forgive Frank and Patrick for thinking they had signed a broken man for 1996. I could accuse them of having bad management skills, but that would not be fair. The problem was with me. I looked up to them as father figures and I was projecting onto them a role they had no desire to play. I was in dire need of approval from them and all season I felt they had been keeping me guessing or keeping their belief in me provisional, which unsettled me. They had no responsibility for me beyond giving me a car to get on with my job. I know that now, but back then I didn't understand how much the loss of my father was still affecting me. 
Great guys though Frank and Patrick might be, I can understand them not wanting to be surrogate parents. They had enough on their plate with running an F1 team. So Ed, it's easy to say Hill lost his head during 1995 and we'll come back to the role of the Schumacher rivalry in that shortly. But is it fair to say Damon's incredible autobiography actually shone a new light on the mental battles he was fighting at this stage of his career? Yeah, very much so. What I really like about it is it shows genuine self-awareness and understanding. He's able to put himself back in that position that he was in in 95 and understand where he was then, but he can apply fresh perspective and understanding to it and understand what he should have done better, why he did certain things. That's the key to learning. The fact that it ties all into his father's death and the impact that had on him and the need for guidance is a very candid and insightful way of looking at it. You can never know how people react to different experiences and how it shapes them and impacts them. And ultimately, in 95, Hill wouldn't have really understood what was going on, let alone everyone on the outside watching. And and when he talks about the impact it had on him, he he said he just wanted to be not less than equal, is is the phrase, isn't it? Because he said that was all right for Senna, so it's all right for, for him. But he probably would have benefited from extra support from Williams. Williams weren't necessarily the best at that, but the good thing is he looks at himself. And he also talks about how he was a little bit burned out as well because he'd worked all over the winter and everything. So he was just learning how to be at the top of his game. It's a great insight, this book, into the learning experience, the self-analysis, and what elite sports people go through and the unseen challenges that can be influencing what's going on. So the best thing to do is go out and and read the book. There's There's another plug for it. Now, talking of another book, prior to being so open about his own struggles, Hill had made comments that did point the finger more at Frank and Patrick a few years earlier. Uh, This is another mention of Maurice Hamilton's excellent Williams book. So for those of you asking, uh, the title of it is Williams, the legendary story of Frank Williams and his F1 team in their own words which was first published in 2009. And there, Hill was quoted as saying, Williams don't understand drivers, which he called a blind spot for the team. So Matt, looking at how Damon's perception of all that evolved by the time of 2016, when he released his own book, it's fair that obviously Frank and Patrick couldn't be expected to take on the surrogate parents role he mentioned. But should we still look at it and say they could have done a better job with Damon than they did in 95? I think the fact that Hills had the self-awareness to discuss things in that detail, plus Williams has a reputation as being particularly hard on drivers, makes this quite a clear case. But looking at how teams look after drivers and think about their mental states a lot more now, through so much of F1 history, there must be so many cases where a driver didn't realise the support they really needed, and the team certainly didn't realise what they could have done to help. Um, In this one, I think it's exacerbated by the fact the two windows in Hill's life where Williams really had faith in him were quite limited, and one came after uh, Williams sacked him uh, during 96. But bear in mind, they they first hired Hill for a race seat as the Patrese replacement. He was supposed to be the support act to Prost, then the support act to Senna, almost then seen as kind of inadequate again by F1 and trying to get Mansell in to lead Williams in his place in 94. Um, so the fact that he ended up nearly winning the 94 title was a surprise to Williams and, and to Damon himself. He wasn't really ready for that kind of pressure. Um, and certainly by by late 1995, as it turned out, Williams had given up on him, committed to Heinz Held Frentzen for the future. There was lots of evidence with Hill's 95 performances and mistakes for why that seemed like the right call at the time. Um, it's only in hindsight that perhaps you realise that if Williams had... Um, arm around the shoulder is a terrible cliche but taken a bit more of an understanding approach and looked at why these lapses were happening then um, they might have saved themselves a lot of bother and um, kept hold of Hill and probably won the 97 title more easily which is now some 
anti-veal nerve sentiment, isn't it? So I'm probably getting banned from the rest of the episode. Yeah, let's change the subject and get back to the race. We mentioned earlier that Schumacher and Lacey both pitted on lap 34 and that Lacey was in the pits for nearly 16 seconds, but Schumacher's stop was only 7.7 seconds. So at this point, Schumacher came out 28 seconds behind Lacey, and by lap 51, he was only a couple of seconds behind. But what Schumacher didn't realise was that he was about to be called into the pits for a third stop. Schumacher was confused by this because he thought he was on two-stop strategy, and by this point, he'd already pitted twice. But that first stop was really just to swap from wets to slicks, and Benetton had barely put any fuel in. Schumacher's first stop was in fact three seconds shorter than Hills, who'd come in at the same time and taken on a proper fuel load. So after making that third stop, Schumacher came out 24 seconds behind Lacey with just 14 laps to go. And Schumacher said after the race he was pretty upset when he got called in for that third stop, and he couldn't believe it when Benetton told him Lacey wasn't coming in again, so he thought he'd lost the race. Now, Ed, we know that in the early years of refueling, Benetton often played some clever strategies and they worked out how to maximise the refueling era of F1 before anyone else and certainly before Williams. But was this strategy actually quite curious from Benetton to have taken that first stop and not really put any fuel in and switched to a free stop? Yeah, given where it put him relative to to a Lacey and the lead, there was a lot to make up there. Often through Schumacher's career, we did see him pull off great things in this sort of situation. Sometimes he would make an extra stop and then deliver a stunning series of laps. But what you can say is definitely wrong is putting him on that strategy and him not knowing it because he wouldn't have known in that in that stint after the second stop that he needed to take everything out of the tyres and just absolutely press on. So who knows how different it would have been had he been aware of that. It worked out. So you can work backwards from the finish and say, well, that was fine. But there was definitely a failure of, of some sort there. It's slightly odd not to at least to put some fuel in at that first stop. I guess that was where it was all defined by. Otherwise, the the, the second stop, if that had been the last stop, would have been very, very long and put him a long way behind. So, yeah, who knows? But, yeah, something's broken there at some point. And do you think that meant at the time, did that look like the race was over? You know, 24 seconds in 14 laps, even for someone of Schumacher's phenomenal talent was a, was a big ask. Yeah, it did look pretty unlikely, didn't it? Even though Lacey was was on old tyres, it seemed like it was race done. I, I have a vague recollection watching it, thinking this was definitely an Lacey win and being very surprised when things changed. Schumacher said afterwards that he only decided to really go for the win when he saw Hill was out of the race, as that meant the championship was effectively decided in his favour. But by that point, he'd already taken 11 seconds out of Lacey in six laps, so he'd not exactly been taking it easy. But this is how the gap came down after that final Schumacher pit stop. Halfway round his outlap, he was clocked at 24 seconds down, and then it went like this, lap by lap. 22.3 seconds, 19.7, 17.9, 15.7, 13.6, 13 13.1 because he had traffic on lap 58, 10.9, 7.8, and then 2.4, and then 0.7. Lacey was having a terrible time of things during this phase of the race. The cameras caught one off at the chicane when he was behind Hakkinen, but I wonder if there were maybe a few more. He said afterwards that he had no front tyres left by this point, so he couldn't fight back. And He was also very critical of Hakkinen and Martin Brundle, who was behind for a long time, but watching it back, he wasn't exactly all over the back of them when they weren't letting him through. So Matt, the big question is, did Alacy throw this away or is it fair to say that one-stop strategy with the heavy fuel load and the tyres that had run out of life by this point meant that 
everything was working against him while Schumacher was hunting him down. Well, there's no doubt that a Ferrari on very worn tyres was not as good a proposition as a, a Schumacher-driven Benetton on fresh tyres at that point in 1995. But the scale of lead that was that was thrown away it and the mistakes involved, and like you say, getting nowhere near these cars he was sat beside, behind rather, when they were a lap down for lap after lap, like 10 or 12 laps just following Hakkinen around, um, a lacy let this one slip ferrari said so at the time and there's look watching it back there's no there's no excuse really for for how that was thrown away you can't see schumacher losing that lead in those circumstances and the remarkable thing is that schumacher actually caught a lacy with a, a few laps to go and could sit behind him for a little bit i think our memories maybe tell us that he caught him and passed him instantly right near the end but he actually had time to sit there and suss him out and by the end of lap 65 he launched his attack around the outside into the final chicane. There was a little bit of contact, but nothing dramatic. And Schumacher was through with just another two laps to complete to take a stunning victory. So, Ed, this is a memorable overtake, one of Schumacher's greatest moments, I think we can say. What did you make of, of the moment he made the pass and they, they kind of rubbed wheels and side pods on the way by? Yeah, it's a, a great moment to have a, a late change of lead in a Grand Prix after a chase. It's just a, a brilliant, exciting and... Uh, and celebrated uh, uh, moment. But when you watch it, you do wonder if Alacy could have been slightly more robust. He's right to cover the inside line. He, d- he does that, but he did allow Schumacher a fairly easy turn in into a moderately clear road, shall we say. He didn't completely block it off. So you wonder, could he have tried to go, uh, to break a little bit later, carry in, uh, carry in a tiny bit more speed and, and sort of block off Schumacher, as it were. But you cannot judge how much front tyre grip he, he really had. He was clearly struggling and not very confident. So if he tried that, maybe he'd have gone careering off the track or piled into Schumacher and would be calling him a, a massive idiot for making the mistake. I think really it was he'd lost earlier. He needed to not get into wheel-to-wheel combat, really. Well, I still think the contact there came more from Alacy still breaking late enough to slide himself into Schumacher, who was fairly well to the right in the second part of the chicane, having gone around the outside in the first part. Um, I have to say, as a fan at that point, that was probably the only time I ever cheered and, and whooped for Schumacher. Never never actually disliked him, but I always had other favourites. But on that day with that pass, you couldn't help but go, oh yeah, he's just made everyone else look stupid. Fair play to him. Now, Lacey looked absolutely gutted on the podium after the race, as you'd expect. But by the time of the press conference, he'd composed himself and he said that, in fact, the combination of Ferrari's strategy and wet setup gave him no possibility to fight with Schumacher at the end. But he was convinced they made the right decisions as it got them up from sixth on the grid to finish second. So, Ed, is that a reasonable way to look at this result for Lacey? Or is the fact that at one point he was more than 40 seconds clear... Is that just too overpowering that this is a race thrown away? Yeah, I think it's a reasonable way to look at the very end of the battle, but not the wider race. Because once Schumacher was with him, it was always going to be difficult, if not impossible, to hold on. What Lacey needed to do was stay out of reach. And he could have done that by minimising his his race time early on, been a bit more decisive in traffic. It's one of the great underrated skills of race execution, isn't it? Often drivers who manage the race like that, we say, oh, that's just easy, wasn't it? They were just out front. But they never let themselves get under threat and have to fight that rearguard action. We also have to remember, as Matt alluded to earlier, we know the 95 Ferrari was a good car. Schumacher showed that when he jumped in it to test it at the end of the year and instantly went faster than Lacey and Berger had ever done. So this has to go down as a, as a victory lost. But I don't actually think it was lost right at the very end, even though that was when literally the lead went away. It was early on. And I don't think anybody could seriously doubt that Schumacher would have won were the roles reversed and he were in a Lacey's position. 
And we'll finish this by going back to Williams for a little bit because Hill, uh, as was mentioned earlier, famously stands trackside to uh, give Schumacher a thumbs up and a little bit of applause. And coming as this did after a couple of collisions at the British and Italian Grand Prix, that was a significant moment. And Hill, reflecting on this in his book, said he did that because we all knew we had witnessed something special that day. But reflecting more generally on 1995, Hill says, My other mistake was to make the battle between me and Michael personal when I should have just focused on my own job. It had seemed like a good game at first, but I had been humiliated by his brilliance. And with the battering I received from the press, I found baffling and frightening. When you have enough doubts about yourself, you don't need everyone else pointing out more. Interestingly, Adrian Newey has spoken about this as well in the Williams book we talked about earlier. He said Damon got himself into a war of words played out through the tabloids with Schumacher. He should have come out the winner after what Schumacher had done to him at the end of 1994. And remember, listeners, we have an episode all about that in series one. Uh, But Newey says Damon came out the loser. He wasn't the driver in 1995 that he had been the previous year. So, Matt, how do we look back on where Damon got himself into with this rivalry with Schumacher? Was this media attention he talked about perhaps a symptom of him being thrust into the spotlight as the next British star after Mansell left. Well, thinking about how much the mainstream British media got behind Mansell and then suddenly that comes to a shuddering stop when Mansell goes to IndyCar. Damon's there, he gets the attention, that attention goes crazy when Senna dies and then when Hill ends up in this Schumacher title fight in 94 with with that ending to it as well. So he's in the middle of this thing that he's not prepared for. He doesn't really fully understand. Couple that with the situation at Williams and how that was affecting him mentally. Couple that with going up against Schumacher and how that was affecting him mentally. And it all adds up into this person that you now look back at, particularly bearing in mind how he described it in his book. And you just see someone who's kind of painted themselves into being something that they just they don't like, they don't feel comfortable being. And uh, I think that came out in his media communications in retrospect, probably even more than did on track at times. It's a, it's a really uncomfortable watch. And I think it, it is the combination of that kind of post-Mansell media hangover and everything else on him. I, at the time, as a as a teenager, I was like, oh, I used to like Damon Hill. Turns out he's rubbish. 20, 22 years on reading his book, I just wanted to like find him and apologize and go, I had, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I can relate to that. I, I became a Hill fan after Mansell left and uh, and I think I rejected him during 95 as well, uh, helped by the fact that I had a new Canadian hero who was doing quite well over in America and was coming over to drive alongside him. But another interesting thing Newey said about 1995 was that he believes Mansell would have won the championship in that year's FW17. Newey said, 95 was a very disappointing year because we had a car that was at least quick enough to win the championship, but we had a few reliability issues and we also had drivers who didn't make the most of the car. If Nigel had been in the car, I believe he would have won the championship. In his 1994 guest appearances, he showed great speed, but not the fitness and stamina to carry it through. I'd certainly pushed through the winter of 94 to have Nigel in the car alongside Damon, but Frank wouldn't have that for whatever reason. I have nothing against David Coulthard, but he wasn't very experienced at that point and he wasn't going to win the championship in 95, whereas Nigel could have done. So this seems like a very bring back V10's place to end this episode with a complete hypothetical scenario. So Ed, would Nigel Mansell have won the 1995 championship if he was in the Williams? I'm not quite as confident as Newey, although I'm certainly not 
100% in disagreement with him. He'd have had a much better chance in a footwork Porsche or whatever we talked about as a Mansell uh, option in a, in a previous episode. He couldn't have made the car more reliable, could he? But he could have had an impact on the number of mistakes. Now, Mansell would have turned 42 during 95. Obviously, that two-race stint with McLaren was a disaster, as discussed in season one of Bring Back V10s, but I don't think that's evidence he was over the hill. That was a whole different scenario. So it comes down to could a 41, 42-year-old Mansell with proper preparation in what was the fastest car and a team he knew well have beaten a 26-year-old Schumacher who put together what I'd argue is his finest world championship campaign. Given the strength of Schumacher and Benetton, how strong that team was, I'm not absolutely convinced, but Mansell could perhaps have been a more formidable foe than Hill and Coulthard, given all that experience, the speed, hard charger, a brilliant driver. So that would have given him a chance. It's a tantalising what if. There's no way I'd discount him, and I think it would have been an absolutely astonishing battle. I imagine it would have been the subject of many a Bring Back V10s episode in an alternative universe where he did get the 95 Williams seat instead of Coulthard. Oh, Ed's been all kind of sensible and measured and balanced, but I'm just going to go blunt. I think Mansell being completely destroyed by Schumacher and being as embarrassed as uh, as Hill and Coulthard were. I, I, look at the end of 94. Coulthard was getting was on the Hill's pace in those last few races before he was asked to stand aside. Look at Mansell's appearance at the end of 94. You know, he was rubbish at Jerez. He couldn't beat a Ferrari to the podium at Suzuka. He only just beat a Ferrari to victory in Adelaide. Um, and then you then you look at what he did at McLaren in '95. This was not Mansell at his best. I don't know how he would have handled the awesome form Schumacher was pulling out that year. On top of the uh, how 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 he might have handled Williams's reliability and strategy problems, I doubt that would have been calm and reasoned on Mansell's side. And I think that could have fed into quite a mess as well. So it's a tantalising what if, but I don't think it would have changed anything about the '95 '95 championship outcome. Oh, that's incredible, Matt. I, I will. Uh, you might have changed my mind because I was going to say. Schumacher would still win the championship, but I think Mansell would have given him a good run for his money. I'm going to use my get out clause is going to be Newey saying that Nigel just needed a bit more fitness and stamina. So I'm going to say that's why he didn't impress you at the end of 94 and he'd have been fine in 95. But I think, as Ed said, Schumacher was brilliant in 95 and there was nothing Hill, Williams, or even Mansell, if he was there, could have done about it. So let's leave the 1995 European Grand Prix there. These race-specific episodes are good fun as we seem to end up going all over the place with finding things to talk about, and that's before we ever get to what's happened on track. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter to ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. And thanks again to all of you who have left us a five-star review and asked your questions there as well. Next time, we're taking a trip back to the start of our era and dipping into 1989 where we'll look back on that year's French Grand Prix. Alain Prost was in the headlines on and off track that weekend, as his war with Ayrton Senna was spiralling out of control, and we'll also discuss one of F1's most iconic accidents, which happened just after the start. <laughs>